The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Again, that's Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 40 on page 880. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equals to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all to live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. The word of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time. Ask for his help as we dive into his word. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Your word is true. We thank you that you did not leave us in the dark, but you've revealed yourself to us in the pages of your scripture. They're authoritative. They're true. And Father, as we explore your word, I pray, Lord, that, uh, that we don't stray from your truth, that your truth will be revealed and received with gladness. Help me, Lord. Speak through Speak through me, Lord. May, may whatever I say uh, be right and accurate. And we ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. All right. Is there life after death? What happens when we die? I'm sure we've all asked this question at one time or another. Uh, there's can't really get away from the subject. There's plenty of books written about it. There's articles written about it. Talk shows talk about it. TV shows, that's the theme is a lot of TV shows and movies. A lot of movies come out wondering what happens when we die. Is it as the atheists claim that we just cease to exist, that we just slip into oblivion? We eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die? Seems like a pretty hopeless scenario. Or does our soul live on? I mean by soul, our, our essence, that, that thing inside of us that, that causes us to see things from our eyes, see things from our perspective that animates us. What happens to that? Does that go on into some spiritual realm or world? And, and then what happens? Does, does it just stay there? Or does it get recycled and reincarnated into another body? Or is there a resurrection? Is there a resurrection of both the body and the soul? Now, this is an important question for Christians, and not just 
Christians, this is an important question for everyone. What happens when we die? We're in the gospel according to Luke, and in our passage, there's a group of people who are challenging Jesus over this very important topic. Is there a resurrection? Now, before we get into this, uh, this uh, passage, let's recap a little bit so we can set the scene, so we can see what's going on here. Way back in chapter 9, if you remember that far back, Jesus decides he's going to go to Jerusalem. It's time to go. And nothing's going to stop him from going. Nothing's going to hinder him from going. Nothing's going to dissuade him from going. He, there's, there's a fate that's waiting for him there. And despite that fate, he is going to Jerusalem. And in chapter 9 to chapter 19 goes on a series of adventures where there's healings, there's uh, teachings, parables, there's rebukings. And finally, chapter 19, he enters Jerusalem. And he enters triumphantly. The king has arrived. The Messiah is here. His multitudes of his disciples are crying out, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But not everyone is pleased with this. See, the religious leaders, you know, they weren't very amused about all this. It's like, all right, Jesus, you know, you'd be a good teacher and all this stuff, but this, this king stuff, gone over the line. It's a little over the top here. That's too much. You've got to dial that back. But Jesus does not do that. We see next in the next scene that Jesus then weeps over Jerusalem because he knows in a few short years, Rome is just going to come in and just bulldoze the place. It's just going to utterly sack it, just destroy it, kill thousands of people. Jesus knows this is going to happen. He weeps over it because they have not turned to him as king. After that, we see that he enters the, the, the temple. What he sees in the temple greatly distresses him and enrages him. And we sees this group of men called money changers. Now, the men who enter the temple, they had to pay a half-shekel temple tax. But not everyone carries around half-shekels. So they have to go to these money changers and, and buy half-shekels. And they pay exorbitant fees for this half-shekel. Furthermore, people come in with their sacrifice, sacrifice to God for their atonement and their sins. And many of them are poor people. All they have are, are pigeons. And these money changers, they would examine these pigeons, and they say, nah, I'm sorry, this pigeon's not good enough. You need one of our Sadducee-approved pigeons. And they pay big C prices for these pigeons. You know, it's like going to a concert and spending $16 for a hot dog. Don't ask me how I know that. But, you know, this enrages Jesus because he's really ripping off the poor people. And, and he, he drives these people out of the temple. I mean, I would, I would pay a lot of money to see that happen. But it's just how he did that. He drove these guys out of, the, out, of the, out of the temple. Didn't let them carry anything. He flips over their table, spills their money all over the place, kicks over their chairs, cleansing the table, uh, the temple, and he says, you have made, turn my, my house will be a house of prayer. You have turned into a den of thieves. Now, NSV, or ESV says uh, den of robbers. I like den of thieves. It sounds much more powerful. Besides my mom, who would have turned 90 a couple weeks ago, she liked that term, den of thieves. So I'm going to use that one too. From there, after he cleanses the temple, he sits down to teach. 
then starting in chapter 20, begins a series of challenges to Jesus' authority. First up come the chief priests, the scribes, and, and elders, and they ask them, by what authority are you doing these things? And Jesus answers their question with a question of his own. The, the baptism of John, was that from heaven or from man? So they go off in a little huddle and they reason among themselves that, well, if we say it from heaven, they'll say, well, why didn't you believe him? If we say it from man, well, all these people there view John as a prophet, they're going to stone us, they're going to kill us if we say it's from man. So they break out of their huddle, and I love what Habib said last week or two weeks ago. He said, we're agnostics. We don't know. We don't know where it came from. It's like my kids growing up, asking questions. Mm-hmm. It's like me when my wife asked me a question. Mm-hmm. And Jesus responds, well, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And if we had social media back in the day, it'd probably say the chief priest asked Jesus a question, and he owns them. Next up comes, uh, so this, this infuriated the religious leaders. So now they send spies to try to trap them into something he might say so that they can either, you know, have the Romans arrest them or turn the people against them. And so these People ask a question, we saw this last week, is it lawful to pay taxes or not? And then Jesus famously answers, rendered to God the things are God's and to Caesar the things are Caesar's. I mean, it's the other way around, but. And, you know, if we had social media back in that day, it'd probably say the scribes asked Jesus a question and he silences them. And then next up come the people called the Sadducees. Now, Luke introduces us to the Sadducees here. This is the first time he mentions them. And there's not a whole lot known about the Sadducees. But what we do know is that it tends to be, they tend to be wealthy and politically well-connected. Josephus, the Roman historian, reported that they had the confidence only of the wealthy, meaning only the wealthy liked these people. The poor had no occasion for them. They had no occasion for the poor. They were politically well-connected and wealthy. It is believed, there's some controversy here, but it is believed that they made up the majority of the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin is the highest court of justice in Jerusalem, and that is the court that Jesus will stand before in a couple of chapters later, where he will be tried. Uh, Luke gives us a clue about them in verse 27 of our text. He says that they are those who deny that there is a resurrection. Now, they also, this is really creaky, they also only accept the Torah as authoritative, meaning the Torah is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those are the only five books they see as authoritative, not the Psalms and the Proverbs, not the prophets. Those are not authoritative, only Moses. Moses wrote the Torah. He's the man. He's their guy. He's the only one they listen to. And they believe the resurrection is not in the Torah. Or is it? They did not get along with the Pharisees. They were at odds with each other, both politically and theologically. Pharisees, on one hand, wanted to overthrow Rome. Sadducees wanted to work with them. Why wouldn't you? You're, you're politically connected with them. You're rich. Life is good. Why upset the apple cart? 
Now, Luke gives us another clue about the uh, Sadducees in Acts 23. And we see in Acts 23.8, where Luke reports, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So you have that theological divide. But Pharisees and Sadducees were united in one thing, and that was to get rid of Jesus. They're opposed to Jesus. They wanted him gone. Jesus had to go. He was bad for business. And they had to find a way to get rid of him. Now we see this divide uh, where Paul uses this theological divide to his advantage in Acts 23.6, where the Pharisees and the Sadducees are coming up against him. It's getting increasingly violent. And, and, and Paul yells out, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And this, you know, the Sadducees said, wait, what? Resurrection from the dead? There's no resurrection from the dead. And the Pharisees said, yes, there is. Sadducees said, no, there isn't. Pharisees said, yes, there is. Sadducees said, no, there isn't. This became increasingly violent to the point where they're about to rip Paul apart. But Roman commanders saw this melee, sent some soldiers down there, broke it up, rescued Paul, and Paul lived to fight another day. Now, these are the people that are now confronting Jesus with a question about the resurrection. So this is where the scene is. And the question involves seven brothers and one woman. So the first brother marries her and dies. So now the second brother marries her. And they say in verse 28, teacher, it's teacher, Moses, that's their guy, Moses, he's the man, wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife, but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, if you're wondering what's going on here, that's called leveret marriage. And what that means is, or what we'll, we can see that, we can find that in Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 5 through 6. And it goes like this. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of, the dead, of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Now, I won't get into the pros and cons of this, but one of the purposes of this law was to continue the man's name. It says that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So in the Sadducees' sense, in a sense, this gives him an afterlife. So he has kids now. He lives on through his kids. That's their idea. So get back to their question. The second brother marries her and dies. The third one marries her. The poor woman obviously has no choice in this matter. Fourth brother, I imagine, is probably shaking his boots right now. Fifth one is probably cursing the first brother. And the sixth and seventh are probably wondering, what are the odds? <laughs> well, the odds are pretty good. Because as it happens, the third marries her, dies. Fourth and the fifth, sixth, followed by the seventh one. They all marry her and die. Finally, the woman dies. So, Jesus, they ask, in the resurrection... Whose wife will she be? 
mean, all seven of her had all seven of them had her as wife. All seven consummated their marriage. Whose wife is she? Imagine they're probably smugly high-fiving each other, thinking they finally delivered an unwinnable question for Jesus to answer. Now, you're probably wondering, this something fishy, you're probably thinking there's something fishy about this question. And you're right. I mean, look at the events leading up to this. They're challenging his authority. You know, Jesus exerted his authority, now they're challenging his authority. Religious leaders do not recognize him as king. They want to destroy him. Now you have a group that doesn't believe in resurrection asking a resurrection. So something might be a little fishy about this question. But at the same time, there are variations of these questions I'm sure you've all asked. Many of you have been married for a very long time. You might be wondering, am I going to be married to my spouse in the afterlife? Maybe you've already lost your spouse. Maybe you're wondering, am I going to be married to my spouse? You know, I have my own variation I could ask. Many of you know I got remarried a year ago. You know, will I, who will I be married to? Will I be, you know, my prior wife passed away. Will I be married to my wife now or, you know, my prior wife? My wife, this is her first marriage. She could ask a variation. You know, will I be married to him? Will he be married to her? How does this work? Even single people. Will I get married in the afterlife? Will I to hang out with married people for eternity? How does this work? These are all variations of this question. But it's safe to assume then the Sadducees, I mean, there's all legitimate questions to ask, but it's safe to assume that the Sadducees are trying to, not really interested in resurrection, they're trying to undermine the authority of Jesus by attempting to show how ridiculous resurrection is. So if they can do that, they attempt, they can show that Jesus is a fake, that he's a fraud, that he's a phony, someone that you need to distance yourself from. But as fishy as this question seems to be, it needs to be answered. It needs to be answered well. And it needs to be answered in a way that demonstrates Jesus' authority. Because if his answer does not honor the sacred text, he will be shown to oppose Moses. And that's just not critical as far as Sadducees and Pharisees and religious leaders are concerned. The Jewish people look to Moses as authoritative as well. You cannot go up against Moses. But you notice that there are two competing notions in this question, right? There, there's the one notion of, of afterlife where it's persistence of life through one's progeny. You know, you're, you're, you live on through your children, hence the leveret marriage. Or the other option is resurrection. Now, the Sadducees believe that Moses taught immortality through posterity. So they think that resurrection is absurd. Therefore, it's excluded from the Torah. <clears throat> so, how will Jesus' authority by, uh, be shown by his answer to the Sadducees' skeptical question regarding Moses and the resurrection? Well, we're going to take a look at Jesus' two-part answer. First, First, he discusses two ages. There's going to be this age, then the next one to come. And then we're going to see what Moses has to say about the resurrection. So to dive into our text, we're going to look at Luke 20, verse 34. 
And we're going to see that there are two ages. Verse 34 says, And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels, are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So Jesus here is teaching some important truths about life in the resurrection. Now, he is uniquely qualified to do this since he came from heaven. And he speaks of life after death and angels because he knows what he's talking about. And I mentioned angels, he mentions angels, or it's interesting that he mentions angels since the Sadducees do not believe in angels. And I think that's probably why he does mention them. But as we unpack this, we'll see four truths. Jesus reveals to us four truths. And the first truth is that there is no marriage in heaven. So Jesus here is drawing a distinction between this age and the next. In this age, we marry and are given in marriage. So the Sadducees had this false assumption about the resurrection. The Sadducees assumed that the life to come, if they assumed in the resurrection, if they believed in the resurrection, their understanding of the resurrection would would mean that married people would still be married. If they believed in the resurrection, their idea of a resurrection would mean that the next life would be the same as this life, only longer, much longer. But our existence then will be different than our existence now. In the next stage, we will neither marry nor be given in marriage. So this obviously undermines the basic assumption of, of their question. And it's also proved, besides the fact that what woman would ever marry seven brothers in the first place, you know, it shows the proof that this question will never arise. It's basically a ridiculous hypothetical. <clears throat> now, some husbands and wives may be disappointed that they won't be married married in the afterlife. I understand that. Because marriage affords us a companionship and an intimacy that we don't find in other relationships. So I can understand why you'd be disappointed. However, I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, we realize that we don't really fully love our spouses. We really should. I mean, I, I'll confess, my, lo my love for my spouse, I mean, it, it's tainted for, with sin. Even my prior spouse is tainted in sin. My love for everyone is tainted in sin. Your love, your love for everyone too. So we'll never love everyone as fully as we will. But in the next age, where we're free from all that stuff, we will love everyone, our spouse, everyone, as fully as possible. <clears throat> More fully than we ever will here. And for singles and those in a broken marriage, that should be especially precious to you. Because married or single in the next age, you know, in the next age, we're going to be full of joys that, that we're not fully equipped to understand here. So eternal bliss is seeing God's face and being with his people in a world that is renewed, free of corruption, free of sin. There's no sickness, no pain, no sorrow, incomprehensible joy. All of our desires fulfilled forever. See, marriage is a picture of our relationship to Jesus Christ. It's helpful to remember that we are currently engaged to Christ. 
You know, we need to find our full satisfaction in him. We won't find full satisfaction in our spouse or any other relationship. We need to find our full satisfaction in him. We are the bride of Christ. You know, there's a, there's a profound mystery of marriage. Uh, it's not, marriage is not, in the, not an end in of itself, but it refers to Christ and his church. That's the profound mystery of it. And we put a great deal of value and emphasis in marriage. We love marriage, but it's not the end-all, be-all of human existence. It's more important as our relationship to Jesus. So the first truth is there is no marriage in heaven. Second truth is not everyone will go to heaven. Verse 35. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, those are the ones that will be in the resurrection. So it's only those God considers worthy will go there. Well, then that begs the question, how do you become worthy? Jesus doesn't really answer that in this passage. However, the word you, Jesus uses gives us a clue, and, and the Greek word is kadioxio. Again, full disclosure, I'm not a Greek scholar. You know, when I study these passages, you know, it was pointed out to me. So I'm sharing that with you. My wife is sitting here thinking after four years he can't speak Spanish, and now he's dropping Greek on us. <laughs> but the word is kataoxio. And what that means is to be counted worthy or to be made worthy. See, worthy is not something we do. It's not something inside of us. It's something that external. It's done to us. Something God declares about us. What we know from the rest of the New Testament is that you know, Jesus came from heaven. He lived a life, a perfect life on this earth. Fully pleasing to God the Father. Everything he did pleased the Father. He always loved the Father. He always obeyed the Father. There was a moment in his life where he didn't. And then you look at us, and there is not a moment in life where we did. We've, all, we've sinned against him. We've rebelled against him. We've hated him. And we're going to see in a few, short moment, a few short chapters that Jesus, this perfect one who's always obeyed the Father, is going to stand before a group of men. They're going to condemn him to die for nothing. And they're going to whip him. Instead of us being whipped for our sins, Jesus is going to be whipped. Instead of us being beaten for our sins, Jesus is going to be beaten. Instead of us hanging on a cross, suffocating to death, it's going to be Jesus on that cross. And God the Father is going to pour all of our sins upon our past sins, our present sins, the ones we're committing right now, the ones we're going to commit tomorrow and the day after and the day after that. Pour them all on Jesus Christ. He's going to hang there until he dies. He's going to stab him with the side of the spear. That should have been us up there. But instead it was Jesus. And God, being merciful and gracious, unites us to Jesus in his life and his death. But it doesn't end there. It can't end there. Because if Jesus doesn't rise again, what good was all that? If Jesus doesn't rise, we don't rise. If we don't rise, we're just in the grave with Jesus. We're all wasting our time here. I've wasted my time preparing this. You're wasting your time listening to me. You waste your time showing up here every Sunday. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, that's how important the resurrection is. But we know that Jesus rose again on the third day. 
And Jesus, God not only unites us to him in his life and his death, but also his resurrection. He has counted us worthy. He has declared us righteous. He looks upon us and sees his son. He's given us his son's righteousness. He has basically stamped us that you are declared righteous. It's a legal transaction. All of our sins are paid for, paid for by Jesus Christ. We are set free from our sins. We are cleansed from our sins. We are now considered righteous, now considered worthy, and we will attain to the resurrection. That's the greatest news ever. I, I, you know, I can't even top that. I, I don't even know. I should probably just end it now, except we have a group of people called the Sadducees that are still waiting for their answer. So the first truth is there is no marriage in heaven. Second is not everyone will go to heaven. And the third is that when we are raised from the dead, we will not die again. Verse 36 says, For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels. We will not be angels. You hear a lot of talk, you know, loved ones, oh, they're an angel in heaven now. No, they're not. They're like an angel, if they're worthy. <laughs> but they're not angels. They're like angels, equal to angels. But like angels, angels are created for God's glory. We also are created for God's glory. And while angels devote their worship to God, we will devote our worship to God. Unfallen angels never sin. When we attain the resurrection in the next age, we will never sin. I mean, isn't that glorious? We will not be able to not love God. Can you believe that? Angels never get married in the next age. We will not get married. And angels are immortal, which is the main point of what Jesus is pointing out here in his answer. And when we raised, we will not die again. Remember, Jesus is the first fruits, and what that means is that he is the first one to be raised from the dead to never die again. Never die again. And when we raise, we will not be die, we will not die again. You know, one of the purposes of marriage is procreation, and we see that in Genesis 1:28, where God says, and, and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. See, God gave us the institution of marriage. But since we won't die anymore, there's no more need to procreate, therefore no need for marriage, completely knocking the legs out from underneath the Sadducees' question. So the first truth is there's no marriage in heaven. Second, no one go, not everyone goes to heaven. Third, when we are raised, we will not die again. That brings us to the fourth truth, is that God will raise us up to be his children. Verse 6 says that we are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. And this is a truth regarding our salvation. John chapter 1, verse 12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If you're a son of the resurrection, you are a child of God. Galatians 3.26 says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For some of you sensitive type sons, it means children. Children. Sons and daughters. So life of the resurrection is something where we share as the family of God. God will not leave his children in the grave. He will raise them up and bring them home. For us, I think that's enough, isn't it? 
The fact that Jesus died for us and makes us worthy to, to be with him in the afterlife. But there's a group that's not satisfied yet. What does Moses say about the resurrection? Moses has to say something about it or else it's still not true. And we look in verse 37 of our passage. Jesus continues. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, that's the burning bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. So now Jesus turns to Moses to provide scriptural support for his position. And he's referring to Exodus 3, 6. That's the part where Moses talks to the burning bush, and he sees God in the burning bush. And in that episode, God says, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he is afraid to look at God. So while Moses was speaking to, while God was spoke, speaking to Moses, he was still God of the long-dead patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They have been dead for hundreds of years. So why would God mention his covenantal relationship with people whom have died unless they were still alive? So Sadducees prided themselves in knowing Scripture. They knew the Torah. Moses was the man. He was their guy. They're convinced the Torah said nothing about resurrection. But this wasn't past, past tense, I was. It said, I am the God of these men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus is turning to Scripture. Our Jesus turning to Scripture shows he believed in the full inspiration and authority of Scripture. Of course, we know 2,000 years later that Jesus wrote Scripture. But back here at this moment, they didn't know that. They didn't realize that. They, they refused to even see that. But he's turning to Scripture. And hundreds of years later, after these men have died, he is still their God. God is still their God. And it only makes sense if they're still alive. Exodus 2.24 says, And God heard their groaning, and God remembered the covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God made promises to these men. They see the full possession of Canaan or Canaan as non-Americans call it. Their offspring will be as numerous as the sky, as numerous as the sand in the desert. But none of them saw those promises fulfilled. They did not see the promised king. The promised king was sitting before them at that moment. They did not see the promised king. The long-dead patriarchs didn't. They didn't see these promises. Yet God will keep every one of these promises to them. Everyone will be true in the resurrection in the next age because God is the covenant God of the resurrection. So Jesus shows that they had bad exegesis. Exegesis means explanation or interpretation of Scripture. They did not have good interpretation of Scripture. And that should give us pause, you know, as we read Scripture, you know, we need to make sure we interpret it correctly. You know, pray to God when you read Scripture. And I encourage everyone to read Scripture Pray to God for interpretation, understanding, because it's so happy, it's so easy. I mean, I imagine their motives were probably, they're rich, they're probably serving money rather than God, and that's why they didn't interpret it correctly. But as, Moses, or as Matthew says, Matthew 
reports the same uh, story, the same episode. Matthew says in Matthew 28, 29, but Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. The power of God. They don't know the scriptures, they don't know the power of God. If God cannot raise the dead, then he's not much of a God at all. And it doesn't even make sense anyway. If God created man out of the dust and breathed life into them, you mean you tell me that if they die, that's it? He, he does, he's not powerful enough to raise them from the dead? Of course not. Of course he can. Therefore, Moses himself is testifying to resurrection. And Jesus concludes that they must still be alive and will live forever. In verse 38, he says, Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. NIV translates it, for to him all are alive. God has given them life. God's given them life. He can do this. He can raise us from the dead. Now, you look at our last verse. Some of the scribes, the ones that believe in the resurrection, they say, hey, good job, Jesus. He answered well. Verse 39, then some of the scribes answered, teacher, teacher again, you have spoken well. That doesn't mean that they've come to recognize him as king. They still refer to him as, as, as a teacher, but not king. They just agree with him on the resurrection. They agree with him on his exegesis of the burning bush passage. That's all that really means. You know, but despite their agreement with him, with Jesus on that matter, they're still at odds with him. And you can come back next week to see how Jesus responds to them. So if we had social media back then in the day, it'd probably say something like the Sadducees asked Jesus a question, and now they are sad, you see. <laughs> Bad joke. All right. So how will, how will Jesus' authority be shown by his answer to the Sadducees' skeptical question regarding Moses and the resurrection? Well, Jesus turns to Moses for proof of resurrection. And for further proof, Look at the empty tomb. Look at the empty tomb. Jesus died and rose from the dead. His tomb is empty. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And we will rise with him. Everyone who comes to God through faith in Jesus Christ will be considered worthy, will become sons of the resurrection, will therefore will become sons of God, will be raised from the dead to enjoy God forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your grace, your mercy that you've provided a way to forgive us of our sins through the blood of your son, Jesus, who died and rose again. We thank you for resurrection. For without resurrection, Lord, you know, your whole entire story of redemption and restoration wouldn't even make sense. Father, we thank you that you didn't just stop things at the grave, but it continues on. We look forward to the next age, but until that day comes, Lord, I pray with every breath that we'll continue to worship you, continue to love you, continue to spread your good news. And pray all, all these things in your son's wonderful name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.